Just before we begin, I've just started to release new stories to my Substack, so if you'd like to read the latest new ghost stories, just visit davidpaulnixon.substack.com. Memory can be so cruel. The happiest, most beloved memories of our lives will fade so easily, while the most uncomfortable, painful recollections can remain as vivid and intense as when we first experienced them. The worst moments of our lives are the ones we obsess over the most. They get stuck on repeat. Helplessly we relive them over and over, get fixated on the details, thinking of a thousand ways that we might have done things differently, somehow change the outcome, while knowing that that can never be possible. Time lessens the pain. We can't forget, but we can come to terms with it, move on from it, think of it less and less, live most of our days without even thinking of it. At least that's what we'd hope. Some people find it hard to let go. Rather than a painful memory diminishing over time, it grows and grows, becomes more extreme, more disturbing, the pain is kept alive. Some may be overtaken by fear. A haunted state that rules over their life keeps them withdrawn from the world. Others will see their pain turn to hate, a need for retribution to avenge themselves. Hate can be a drive, a motivation. It can feel like strength, especially when we feel that we need strength the most. It can be rewarding to hate, and settle scores and get satisfaction. Why would you want to forget? There are some people who can't let go because they don't want to let go. And there are some hatreds that can burn so bright that their light never really goes out. is David Paul Nixon and this is the New Ghost Stories podcast where we dig into the New Ghost Stories archive to hear witness accounts of the supernatural. Stories that could be delusions, lies, fantasies or perhaps even the real thing. Just don't make your mind up until you've listened. Despite the ominous introduction to this podcast I actually have very fond memories of the encounter that led to today's story. Most of my cases tend to be broadly contemporary, set mostly over the past few decades, and that's probably because most people, if they come into contact with my work, they do so online. But I do occasionally get a case that goes back much further. Those cases are much more challenging, though, because the further back something occurs, the harder it is to research. I can't do it all hunched over my laptop picking through search results. And as a one-man band, the time and expense required to chase leads and visit archives can sometimes be too prohibitive. That's one of the reasons today's story was such a pleasant oddity. So much of the work had already been done for me. It really gives you hope when you meet someone who's in the twilight of their years, yet they still retain the sharpness of their mind. The gentleman at the centre of this tale was born just on the eve of the First World War. He was already well into his nineties by the time we were introduced. I liked him almost immediately. He was immensely charming and very intelligent, a born talker with an inquisitive mind, and some obsessive tendencies that would turn out to be very useful to me. He had experienced something as a young man that had haunted him his whole life, and in the twilight of his years he was trying to make one final attempt to make sense of it all. He had tried several times over the years to do so, but his family had not wanted to acknowledge or discuss the incident. They had tried to pretend that it had never occurred, barely acknowledging the consequence it had on one part of the family. 
but he refused to accept that it was a fiction or a false memory, and he decided that he would finally collect together whatever facts he could. Enlisting his young family, he'd put together a dossier of evidence about what had happened one day in a small town more than 80 years ago to try and settle once and for all if what he remembered could really have happened. He said he'd found nothing to shake his convictions. The memories to him were still vivid, and I distinctly remember the ease to which he delivered the story. It was set down very firmly in his mind. There were no hesitations or pauses for recollection. He was more consistent and more clear than many of my much younger subjects. All I really had to do was double-check his working out, see that what he had asserted really did match the facts he had been able to uncover. This story has something in common with a story from my last podcast. Both stories seem to revolve around some event, some experience from the past that has somehow survived even after its protagonist has passed on. In the case of the previous story, we had a phenomena trapped within a certain place. In this story, we have a phenomena trapped within a certain object an object passed down through the generations. What we may have here are connections that date back centuries. One man's reminiscence of events that took place more than 80 years ago, connecting to some echo from the past that goes so far back that we can only speculate to its origin. It's rather awe-inspiring. Unless, of course, you think it's all bunk, and that what you're about to hear could never possibly have happened. It's time to introduce you to new ghost stories case number 52. The Black Clock. The following story has been shared under an agreement that respects the right of the subject to remain anonymous. Certain names, dates, and locations have been changed to protect that anonymity. Events that feature in this story may be part of the public record. If you believe you recognize any of the places, people, or events that feature in this story, I ask that you not reveal any knowledge or information publicly out of respect for the subject's right to remain anonymous. It was a very long time ago, and I was very young, maybe ten or eleven. I spent most of my time growing up in boarding schools. My parents were civil servants, diplomats really, and they seemed never to be in the country. You know, I think that during some of my formative years I may have only actually seen them two or three times a year, although as I was born in 1914, I suppose I should be grateful that I had a father at all. He spoke French, German and Spanish so they took better care of him and didn't just throw him into no man's land to get shot. Ironically, the result of his and my mother's international travels meant that I grew up hating foreigners and resolutely refused to achieve in any of my language studies, English accepting, of course. I grew up a very lonely child, introverted and more prone to quiet activities and hobbies than sports or performing. When holidays would come around and my parents weren't at home to accept me, I would stay with my uncle Gwillem, who ran a shop in Egham. This gave many of my school friends great amusement. We were all snobs from the upper crust, and the thought of me spending summer in a little shop was funny to them. It wasn't funny for me, not because I was embarrassed that my uncle wasn't a minister or a landowner or a deacon, but because he was an exceptionally odd chap. He didn't run a normal sort of shop. His was a clockmaker's shop. In fact, he preferred to think of it as a clockmaker's museum, because he had ambitions to turn his collection into a kind of exhibition but he never quite got around to doing it because he was too busy with his tinkering to actually get around to doing anything definitive. He was so very easily distracted. This particular summer, the last that I went to stay with him, he was so preoccupied with his work that he forgot to get a room ready for me. He was incredibly untidy. You wouldn't believe it, he had a respectable townhouse and shop front, but it was full of old rubbish. 
His whole home was his workshop. There were bits and pieces of clocks and cogs and mechanics everywhere. The worst thing was that every so often he would get the idea to expand his knowledge beyond clockworks and bring in a motor or a sewing machine or some other mechanical thing. And then he'd get bored with them and they'd just get left in whatever room he'd put them in, doomed to remain in the must-get-around-to-doing-that pile. One year I went there and he had a motorcycle in his dining room. He had the dining table stood on its end, leaning up against the wall to make room. At least he finished that by the next time I visited. Even he realised that he needed somewhere to eat. There were no bedrooms empty, though, either that or he just didn't want me in his hair. So I stayed at the pub across the road. Besides the initial sorrow of being neglected by my family again, I actually came to like it there. The food was good, not special, but filling and wholesome, and I was getting to the age when I was starting to feel for women. And there was this charming young barmaid working there. I wish I could remember her name, but she was probably my first love. She was very sweet to me, and I absolutely adored her. Uncle Gwillem, for all his eccentricities, was renowned in his field and people would travel quite a distance for his skill and to hear his expertise. And Gwillem loved visitors, because he would cajole them into seeing his museum, such as it was. I wasn't particularly interested in clocks and watches, but I was lonely and I was keen to feel the affection of a parent, even a neglectful one, so I would often watch him work and spend time in his shop. Now this particular visit, Gwillem was working on something special. It was a 16th century German clock, it was black, a sort of gothic design with covers on the front and back, or with the cogs exposed on the sides. It had two bells on the top, one on top of the other, and I'm not certain how to describe it, these little embellishments on the arches, the ones that went from the body up to the top where they held the bells. There were these knobbly things. I suppose they were supposed to be leaves, or maybe just simple decorative twists. But they looked to me like gargoyles or cruel birds like crows or ravens perched threateningly, along with the spiked feet and pointed each of the top corners, it looked rather unpleasant. I didn't like the look of it, and I told my uncle so, and this made him rather upset. Don't you know who this clock belonged to? he asked, as if I could possibly know. He said it belonged to, and I think I've remembered this right, Count Emilio Martinez, a Spanish nobleman who was known to have a love of timepieces and clocks. By all accounts, he was not a pleasant figure, and his love of clocks came for a ruthless need for efficiency from his staff and business associates. We'd probably call him a compulsive these days. Anyway, the clock had carved on a small plate on its front the Count's name and icon, and if the clock was owned by the Count, it must be a quality piece, one made by a clockmaker of some renown. Gwillem was quite puzzled by it, though. He was sure that the design and mechanism were German, but he could not determine who had made the clock, because the maker's mark or stamp was missing. But also because the Gothic design wasn't one that would appeal to a noble family, at least not to more florid Spanish tastes. It was a fine specimen of its type, in good condition, but not very ornate. More of a clock for an official or a judge than a wealthy nobleman of some standing. The clock was a mystery, which is why my uncle was distracted by it. It was something he was determined to get to the bottom of, but the clock needed repairing too. Although outwardly it had been well looked after, it hadn't told the time in many years. Gwillem spent all afternoon making measurements and making sketches. He recognised the mechanism, but felt that somehow the pieces were out of proportion. 
not the sizes he'd expected, and certainly not the work of a master craftsman. He garnered the opinion that it was a botch job, that some amateur had attempted to mend the clock after its original workings had worn through. The clock presented a challenge, if a frustrating one. The clock's owner, who knew something of the clock's strangeness and obscurity, had promised that if Gwillem could make it tick and solve the mystery of its origin, it would allow him to display it in his museum for six months, along with full payment for his services. As if the fulfilment of this bargain was a certainty, Gwillem had already made a place for it in his hallowed museum, a high shelf on the right-hand wall. Gwillem, though a man of considerable skill, had no sense of aesthetics. His museum was a mess, his clocks and watches badly organised on these unattractive metal shelving stacks, all too crowded together and overstocked. His other mistake, which I suppose was more understandable, was to have all his clocks working in his museum. You can understand why, after all, that was his job, to make his clocks tick. But the noise, it was like a field of crickets going bananas, tick, 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 tick. It was an incredible sound, quite something to experience, but not something you could stand for very long. Uncle Gwillem liked to say that he could listen to the sounds of the clocks ticking and tell instantly if any of them had lost time. Of course, this was absolute nonsense. When it was the turn of the hour, clocks would start to ring their bells and chimes five minutes before and some ten minutes afterwards. It really was quite a collection, though. There were extraordinary items in there. Grandfather clocks, pocket watches, war clocks, astrolabes. The cuckoo clocks were my favourite growing up. Sometimes they were very imaginative and playful. Little woodcutters would pop out and chop the wood, or little canaries would come out and sing just for a little moment. Amongst them the black clock looked positively miserable. Yet it got pride of place on a high shelf above the wall clocks, with the hanging chimes. The hands, although one of them was broken at the end, pointed to just after 4.30. I swear to you, to this day, if I ever look at a clock and it's 4.32 or 4.33, it sends a shiver right down my spine. I'll tell you what happened. Although my main love was the Inn's Barmaid, wish I could remember what the pub was called, but I think it's gone now. I had struck up a relationship with the grocer's daughter, entirely through self-interest, of course, because she had daily access to boiled sweets and was good at stealing them without her father noticing. We'd become friends in the Easter holiday before. Her father wasn't sure what to think of me, probably because of my family, but her mother absolutely encouraged our games. I think she hoped that we might get married one day, and her daughter might be moved up the social ladder. Seems silly, doesn't it, that we really thought like that back then? But we did get on famously. Iris was her name. I wonder what happened to her. She was a loner like myself, a dreamer with her head in the clouds, and not good at paying attention at school. We both liked to draw and to walk in the country. We weren't so far from the edge of Windsor Park where we could watch young couples punting along the river or the lake. Happy days. Happy mostly. To my slight embarrassment, I didn't know how to fish, and it seemed to me that everyone knew how to fish in the village. It was something that seemed to bridge divisions. I remember the young men at my school speaking fondly of it too, and Iris could fish, and I felt a bit silly getting lessons from a girl. But she was very keen to teach me, and I couldn't help but feel obliged to accept her offer. So plans were set for us to go fishing. I was able to find a fishing rod in Gwillem's attic, and he was able, after a full day's pestering, to get it in working order for me. 
were all set to go when I found, much to my surprise, her father's shop closed. Not to be discouraged, I went to her family home, which was not so far away. There was quite a commotion, raised voices, screaming, tearful screaming from the house. I was pretty wary, as, as you can imagine, but I was still keen to keep my appointment with Iris. So I still went to the door, and I was about to knock, I remember, when there was this terrific smash, something thrown and then breaking. That made me scared, so I was about to leave, but just as I was about to go, I heard my name called. I looked up and saw Iris in her bedroom. She had the window open and shouted to me to meet her around the back. I quickly obeyed, and she appeared a few moments later in the alley with her fishing rod and all her bits and pieces. She was never one to let anyone tell her what to do. That was something I liked very much. I was a much meeker child. We went to the lake, and I tried hard to find out what was going on at her home. She said that her brother Billy was home, and this was news to me because she'd never once mentioned a brother. She said he was a wrongan and always in trouble and that her parents preferred him to stay away. But now he was home again and insisting on staying. She didn't seem to know much more than that, either that or she wasn't telling. I didn't inquire too much, I don't think. So we went fishing. We had fun, I seemed to remember, although I didn't really understand what the fuss was about. Dangling your rod into the water and then just sitting around waiting. You know, I, I don't think I've ever been again. I wasn't very keen on the wriggly things, worms on the hook, that sort of thing. She didn't seem to give it a moment's thought. Then when we caught a fish and it was there in my hands, its big eye looking up at me with the hook through its mouth. I was so shocked I dropped the poor thing. Iris was quick to save the day and got it into the net in the water. She teased me about being a posh knob. I remember being a bit upset about that. It was a nice afternoon, ultimately. We caught four or five fish. Old Tiddlers. It was only on the way home that we got into trouble. I should have left her and let her go home alone, but I followed her all the way back, completely oblivious to the fact I was walking into trouble. The second she got home, she received a very severe telling off and a threat of physical harm from her father. The belt was not uncommon in those days. I was told to go off home straight away or else they'd speak to my uncle. No, I didn't think I'd done anything wrong, but I thought it probably best Gwilym didn't know. Not that I could imagine him doing anything as crude as smacking me. But as I was walking away, their front door opened up again and I was shouted at, Oi, you! I turned and found striding towards me the man I immediately guessed was Brother Billy. Huge, hulking brute, broad shoulders with a granite jaw, and chin you could chop wood on. He was a frightening figure to behold. And he was marching towards me, and he reached out and he picked me clean up off my feet. You've been playing about with my sister, have you? I think he assumed I had more knowledge and feelings about women at that age than I really had. We went fishing, I told him, scared out of my wits. Oh yeah, he said. That's all, is it? Just fishing? Yes, please let me go. I was almost in tears. I was so very frightened. Now you listen to me, your lordship. I don't want any of your time near my family. You make me sick, you hear? No rich toffs near my sister. I hate bloody rich ponces. You stay away from her, I'm going to have you. You getting me? I nodded furiously and he let me go. I landed hard on my behind as he lumbered back to his house. Don't let me catch you anywhere near this house again. Upset, I went very quickly back to my uncle's. 
What he was supposed to do about it, I don't know. He probably didn't even know what a punch was. But I went back to his shop for comfort or support or merely for someone to talk to. Iris was my friend and the thought of not seeing her again. I was unhappy about it. And I wasn't too keen on getting my ears boxed in my brother Billy either. Gwillem's shop door was open, even though it was past his closing time. I shouted for him when I got in, but he didn't answer. I walked up to the counter and shouted for him again. Still, there was no answer. I went through the door to the left of the counter into his museum. Amongst all the noise, it was likely as not he wouldn't be able to hear me if he was in there. It was as intensely loud with tickings and clickings as always. But there was no sign of him. I shouted again as if he could hear anything coming from amongst such a din. As I walked slowly through the aisles, feeling sorry for myself, the clock started to ring for half past the hour. Half past four. I sighed because Iris has always said she'd wanted to see the museum, but I had never taken her. For Uncle Gwillem there was never a good time for it. As the bells and chimes rang, I became aware of one ring above all the others. A sharp, shriller ring that somehow I was able to make out over all the other chimes. Like the ringing in one's ear you get when exposed to a loud noise or when your ears pop. I identified its origin almost instantly. I don't know how or why, but I looked right up at the high shelf to the black clock. It was ringing. I had no idea that Gwillem had got around to fixing it. It was an odd sound, very clear, very high. And it seemed to be echoing even in that small space. The high-pitched sound seemed to be bouncing off the walls. I thought it was peculiar that I had been able to single out that sound amongst all the other sounds in the room. And that's when I discovered, much to my total astoundment, that it was the only clock ringing. Or ticking, for that matter. The room of clocks, the ever-incessant ticking clocks, was silent. There was no sound at all. I looked around me. All the clocks had stopped. The hands weren't moving. The pendulums were caught mid-air. Nothing moved, stirred, ticked or clicked a sound. I couldn't believe it. It was as if the whole world had come to a stop, and I was caught in the middle, in a little pocket of dead time, literally stuck in a moment. It was an extraordinary, unsettling feeling. Then I looked again to the black clock. The bells rang again. I could see them shake. Their sharp hum was the only sound in the air. Everything else was still, and then when they stopped it was deadly silent. There was no sound, no noise at all. And then there was a footstep. My skin fell cold, I was breathing heavily. I was not alone. There was someone behind me. Their shadow fell over me. The floor creaked underneath them. I could hear their breath above mine. I spun around in terror. The figure I saw there, the face. I've never forgotten that face. It was scorched all down one side, from the right eye all the way down past the mouth. Half blind, the burn had sealed up his right eye. Only one dark eye looked out at me. He was bald, but with black eyebrows standing out against the white of his face. His teeth were missing. His jaw hung lazily open, but his lips were curled up in a wicked grin. He was staring right down at me. I was scared so witless I fell backwards, screaming, screeching out all the air in my chest. I started to crawl, terrified, on my backside toward the wall. But as I looked up again, he was suddenly gone, no longer in front of me. Then I heard the floor creak once again. 
and I saw just the barest of glimpses the back of his shoe heels as he passed behind the end of the aisle and away. He had been dressed all in black, old clothes, the type I'd only seen in history books, a sort of cloak and robe type arrangement, kind of like a monk, but a touch more flamboyant, if you could call it that. Maybe elaborate is the word. It was then, within a beat of him disappearing, that suddenly the museum came back to life. Pendulum started to swing. Cogs began to turn. Gears began to move. The place was alive again. The clocks were ticking in their constant synchronism. Time was moving forward like it should. The slow clocks finally began to ring in the passing of the half-hour too. I ran around the shelves looking for the frightening figure, but there was no sign. There was no way out of the museum but for the shop entrance or the back door neither of which he could have reached without me seeing him. As I ran into the shop entrance, Gwillem appeared, wondering what on earth all the noise was about. So I told him, and understandably he didn't believe me. Well, why would you? He was angry that I'd caused such a hullabaloo and called me a little liar. I can understand that he would find it difficult to believe me, but why would I make up such a story? And I was so clearly very distressed. He was emphatic in saying that there had been no one in the museum with me, and that he hadn't mended or fixed the black clock, so how could it have rung? He sent me back to the inn, insisting that I go to my room and stay there or he would get his cane and thrash me. My uncle had never been one for physical discipline. He seemed more determined now than ever before to hand it out. I never even told him about Iris, or her bullying brother. So I went back to the inn and there I stayed. I found it difficult to sleep that night, every creak on the stairs, and I suddenly imagined him there, the man with the burnt face waiting for me, coming for me. I've seen some terrible things in my life. I lived through the Second World War. I've seen a man take a bullet through his cheek and seen a boy's face swell up from mustard gas. But his face, that's always stuck with me more than the others. I remember being thoroughly miserable the next day. Without Iris, I didn't have a lot to do and I didn't fancy too much going back to Gwillem's shop. I moped around and tailed my beloved barmaid until she was sick of the sight of me. Eventually she barked at me to make myself useful. She commanded me to go to the post office to send some letters from a few of the guests. I was keen to go because the post office was close to Iris's grocer's shop. And once the letters were delivered, I paced carefully down the opposite pavement, trying my best to look into the window. I remember thinking that I could see her through the window, helping her father behind the counter. I began to cross the road very slowly not so much traffic back in those days, and I saw her father cross the door to open it for a customer, or at least I thought it was her father. When the door opened, I saw it was Billy, playing at being the good son and helping in the shop. As soon as I saw him, I turned and went back to the opposite pavement. He didn't spot me at first, he was too busy making conversation with one of the old town spinsters. But I looked back and I caught his eye, his eyes, he had these big menacing eyes, opened wide, and he pulled up his hand from his side and pointed out two fingers to make a gun gesture, and he pointed at me with all the conviction of a man holding a real firearm. I ran away quickly. I continued my sulk into the night time and languished in my room with an old book, and then suddenly I got a knock at the door and was told my uncle was here for me. This was an odd occurrence. Gwillem would very occasionally come to the inn to play cards but even then there was little likelihood of him calling for me. I walked through the busy bar. At that time of night it was very busy. Willem was there drinking a half-pint fussily as though he'd never wanted it in the first place. 
I walked slowly towards him, but unfortunately there was no way to get to him without passing my enemy, Billy, who was in the pub as well, making a terrible noise, the kind that bullies make to see if anyone dare tell them to stop. He watched me cross by, and I couldn't help but look into his eyes as I passed. He barked at me, barked at me like a dog. It made me jump, and he and his friends laughed, although I doubt they really found it that funny. Willem seemed more preoccupied than normal. He looked tired and weary. He told me that he'd been researching the clock, but he had come to a dead end and would need to go into London to visit the Guild Library, and that he'd be gone for a few days. This didn't bother me much. What bothered me was that he wanted me to stay in the shop while he was gone to look after the place. Now you can imagine, after what had happened the day before, just how I felt about this. But he would have none of it. In fact, he snapped at me quite sharply. He was clearly out of sorts and somewhat keen to get away. In retrospect, of course, I have some idea why. I was to meet him there 7.30 sharp in the morning to take the keys. He gave me little chance to protest, only telling me to do as I was told. He finished his drink quite quickly and told me it was time to make myself useful. I returned to my room solemnly, dodging an attempt by Billy to trip me up on the way. He'd been listening to the conversation. Quite closely, I'd come to discover. So the next morning, I did as I was told and met Gwillem at the shop. He was in a rush. I was a little late. He was keen not to miss his train. He gave me the keys, but I was to keep the shop closed, which was a relief. However, I was to deal with one customer. Mr. Towney was to pop by sometime in the afternoon to collect his wife's watch, which he had had just repaired. I was to stay in the shop until he visited. I could do whatever else I wanted. I just wasn't to touch anything in the shop, and I was to stay out of the museum altogether. And that was fine by me. Well, it was an uncomfortable day. I didn't know much about how to cook, but I was able to manage on the stove to cook some bacon, which at that age I couldn't get enough of. After that, there was little else for me to do. His home was as full of junk as it always was, but if I were to touch anything, he'd know. Gwillem was one of those people who appeared to live in chaos, but who knew every inch of it, and didn't like you interfering with his sprawling madness. I found an old jigsaw and began to get to work on it on the shop counter. I wasn't very interested in it, but it helped to stave off boredom, and the fear that something in the shop was out to get me. I kept the connecting door to the museum closed, although you could still hear it ticking away like the rumbling of the tides on the sea. The shop itself was actually mostly quiet. Most of the timepieces in there, those on sale, were kept quiet to keep them in mint condition. A few still ticked away, reminding me of the time. I was, of course, terrified at what might happen at 4.30 if I was still there. I prayed Mr. Towney would show up before then. He was a miserable old swine, a fat banker with no patience. I waited impatiently, tensely, as time ticked on. I finished the jigsaw, paced up and down, played marbles on the carpet. I kept looking over at the museum door, half expecting it to open and for the one-eyed man to step through at any time. By the time Towney turned up, I was virtually climbing up the walls. I was so wound up. I remember that he complained that the watch wasn't wrapped up like a gift, but people like him always had to complain about something. He gave me the money, I dropped it in the till which was empty, and then locked up the shop and got out of there. It was ten to four. I'd already decided that if he'd been longer, I'd have locked up and gone before the dreaded half hour. I didn't stray far, though. I wanted to see what happened at 4.30, so I went around the alley behind the shop and climbed the back wall into the backyard. There were windows into the museum. 
but they had been painted over, leaving only the top windows, the narrow panes that opened, clear. It wasn't easy to see in, but I tried my best. I climbed onto the roof of the outhouse and tried to peer in, but I'd made an elementary mistake. I'd forgotten to take a watch with me. I lay up on that outhouse roof for more than half an hour, I must have done, and it started to rain a real downpour. I only knew the time from the church clock, which was hard to hear in the rain. That made it harder to see anything or hear anything for that matter, although the ticking clocks could still just about be heard outside. If the clock stopped or the black-clothed figure returned, I could not tell. I sheltered in the outhouse for a little while and then went back inside to dry off in front of the best fire I could make. There wasn't much more to do there in the evening than there was in the daytime. At least my meals were still paid for at the inn and I ate there handsomely but was not encouraged to hang around in the evening as in those days drinking houses were not open to children. I think I persuaded one of the regulars to play darts with me, and I was chased off by the landlord soon after. I skulked off back to the shop and passed the evening with a book. The place was cold, I couldn't get it warm. The rain had stopped, leaving the whole place quiet. Well, quiet except for the ticking. Even in the upstairs you could hear it through the floorboards. I began to think of it being like woodworm like creepy crawlies munching their way through the walls. They would forget it was there for short periods, but then I'd notice it again. It really grew to despise the sound. You won't find a ticking clock in my home, not even today. Never been able to stand them since. I slept in Gwillem's bed. It was the only one in the house. It was awful. He had these two great big curtains, too long for the window, which dragged on the floor. And of course, in the dark of night, with the moonlight shining through, what did they look like? It was a terrible night. Every time I woke up, I thought there was someone there. Some great cloaked figure standing at the end of my bed. I'd jump up from under the sheets, but of course it was nothing. Barely slept a wink. And you know what it's like when you're unsettled? Every creak of the floorboards, every clank of the pipes, every bird on the roof, the slightest of sounds makes you startled. But the most frightening thing... The thing that really shook me up was at one point that everything was calm, calm, quiet and silent. No sound at all. There was no ticking under the floorboards, no creepy crawly sounds in the walls. The clocks had stopped again. I leapt out of bed, I rushed to the door, I swung it open. And everything was fine. The rustling rumble of the incessant timepieces was going again just as usual. Had I imagined it? I don't know. I didn't know what time it was because I couldn't see in the dark. The next day I resolved to keep myself away from the shop as much as possible. I journeyed up to Windsor Park to see the Red Indian Totem Pole up there. Iris was supposed to have taken me to see it. I deliberately travelled near places I thought she might be in the hope that I would catch her. But I wasn't so lucky. I took a packed lunch, bought with me the remainder of the money Gwillem left me. He hadn't given me much, probably hadn't thought that far ahead. Didn't actually know when he was returning. The only other money in the shop was the money from Mr. Towning the till, which I didn't dare touch. Everything else was in the safe. I climbed some trees, explored some rocks. I passed the time as best as a young boy with an imagination and a want to forget his troubles could do. Importantly, I bought a watch with me this time. I was not going to risk being there at the dreaded half hour. My only target was to be back at the inn for six for the serving hour. It was pie and mash that night. Still very much a favourite. Once again, though, I was not allowed to loiter. The landlord specifically said to me when I started eating that I was to go when I was finished, and he waited for me. I gave him a bit of lip about I was a good customer and he should treat me better. 
He responded by grabbing me by the ear and throwing me out. So I had to go back to the shop to do nothing all evening. Willem had a few old copies of The Strand. I read those and then, well, I had a sudden keenness to be ill-behaved. I decided I would try a few things from his drinks cabinet. But Gwillem being Gwillem, it was practically empty, full of dried-up decanters and almost empty bottles. Only the port was full enough for me to be able to thieve a little without my uncle noticing. I only had a touch, but it was enough to relax me and help me to settle down to rest. I fell asleep in the chair in the lounge, fire still burning. At some point I drifted into a dream. It's difficult to remember how it started, but I know that I was in the dark. And there was light, but very little light. Then I felt heavy, very heavy. I was lying on stone, it was cold and hard. But someone forced me onto my feet. I was being weighed down and realised that I was in chains. I was a prisoner. I was exhausted and unwell, but I was poked and prodded on down this corridor. I wasn't afraid, but I don't remember feeling very much of anything. Except that I was tired and resigned, I suppose, empty. I was barefoot because I could feel cold stone under my feet, and I was forced down this dark corridor with stone walls into this dim chamber. And there were voices in the background, screams and wails. These made me anxious and afraid, but I was just too exhausted to feel much of anything. The stone chamber was lit up by oil lamps, but was very gloomy. Then this figure approached me. I was looking down at the floor, lifting my head was too difficult. And this figure, he stood looking at me for a moment, and then he said something I couldn't understand. It was in a different language, and then I was pulled away, marched away. Not the way I came, but I wasn't scared, I felt relieved. I was being dragged towards light, but before I was pulled away, I found enough strength to lift my head and look at the figure. And just before I awoke, I saw that face, the horrible burnt face again. And once again it smiled at me, grinned at me wickedly. I woke with a start. Not because of the dream, but because I had heard something. A sound from the shop, a crash. The sound of something breaking. The fire was out, it was dark. I was frozen in the chair. I listened carefully for anything, any noise or sound. Damn clocks made it hard to know. But then I heard the creak of a floorboard and I knew that someone was in the shop. That someone was with me. I was frightened, but I didn't fear the one-eyed man. The clocks were still ticking. I slowly lifted myself out of the chair and walked gently into the hall. Just a curtain separated the hall from the shop, but as I crept towards it I could tell that I had not been mistaken. Someone was in there and they were trying to force open one of the display cabinets. Carefully I pulled the curtain to one side and slipped my head around. A figure was using a knife to try and force the lock on a tall cabinet near the window. I still couldn't quite see them and slid behind the counter, taking each step cautiously. The man swore under his breath. I should have known straight away it was Billy. Knowing my uncle was away, he'd come to help himself to some of his stock. He'd already been in the till and taken the money Mr. Towney had left. I was angry, but I didn't know what to do. He'd broken the glass on the front door and let himself in. I couldn't get past him that way. I needed to get to the police station, or just somewhere to find help. But I didn't stand a chance against Billy. The back door, I had to go out the back. But as I turned on my heels, the floor creaked under me, and I knew instantly that Billy had heard me. He was extraordinarily quick. As I looked around to see if he had noticed me, he was already lunging towards the counter. He tried to throw himself over it to grab me. I hesitated in fear and only just managed to get away. 
but in avoiding Billy's grasp, I leapt towards the door to the museum and away from my obvious route of escape. Surrounded again by the ticking clocks, I went instantly to hide. There were four shelf stacks standing parallel in the centre of the museum. If I could give Billy the runaround, get behind him, and into the shop, there was a chance I could escape to the front door. He wouldn't follow me into the street for all to see. The back door would be locked, and I didn't have the key to hand. The front door was my only chance. I crouched behind the very last stack behind some thick box-like clocks. Billy came in slowly. He must have been taken aback a little by what he'd found. Amongst the ticking din I heard him say, Where are you? I should have been ready to make a run for it, but I was paralysed with fear. I tried to peer over the tops of the clocks and through the shelves. I could just about see Billy moving. His shape was just behind the second stack. He was moving slowly. He knew I was there somewhere. But at that moment he was probably admiring the things he might steal. And just when I thought things couldn't become more terrifying, the clocks began to ring in the half hour. I looked at the heavy box-shaped clocks in front of me, and they were showing the time, 4.30, and ringing it in. And sure enough, ringing shrilly above all other sounds was the black clock. Where are you? Billy hissed again. He moved from around the front of the second stack to between the second and third, not so far from me. I wondered if he could see me. My eyes were fixed on him. Could I make it past him to safety? And then the clocks all stopped, just as they had before. It was all quiet. Almost. Only the black clock rang and Billy noticed it. Puzzled, Billy was wondering what on earth was going on. I watched him as he took a few slow steps toward the clock until suddenly my view was obscured. He passed before the stack I was hiding behind, the figure in black with the scorched face. I only saw his clothes. I was crouched too low to see anything else. He moved swiftly, barely making a sound. He vanished for a moment. He must have passed around the end of the stack and gone to the aisle where Billy was standing. Once again I could just about see Billy standing at the end of the aisle, facing the black clock. He must have heard the floorboards creak because he turned around and said in a terrified tone, Who the hell? And that's all he could manage. I saw something pass through the air, whoosh through it, too fast to see what it was, but it struck Billy hard with a vicious smack, and he let out an almighty cry of pain. He fell to the floor I heard him land. I was so terrified that I turned away and buried my head between my knees, clamped my hands over my ears and closed my eyes as tightly shut as I could, but I could still hear everything. The clocks did not tick. There was no other sound now. The air was cut into again, and the crack of the whip, it could be nothing else struck Billy and he screamed in agony, again and again. He must have been hit eight times, nine times. The sound was unbearable. He cried tears of pain and begged for mercy. Please no, please don't, don't. He was shown no mercy. He was thrashed over and over. I was weeping in terror, fixed to the spot in the fear for I don't know how long. I only remembered lifting my hands from my ears when the screaming stopped. The clocks were ticking, but ticking only faintly in the background, as if they were far away. It all felt so unreal. I looked again through the stacks and I could see no one. I could hear Billy, though, wailing, squealing in pain. Shakily, I started to move forward very slowly. I could hear him breathing through his heavy sobbing. Carefully, I approached him. He was on all fours trying to raise himself up. His shirt was soaked in blood. 
in great red streaks across his back. He noticed I was there and lifted his head. His mouth dripped with blood. The whip had caught him across the face. The great red mark stretched from one cheek to another. The corner of his lips split open. He reached out to me. He wanted to say something, but he couldn't. He was in too much pain. Then I saw... I, I couldn't have seen it. I must have sensed it. The whip moving once more through the air. There was nothing there, nothing I could see. But it made its violent hiss, and it smacked again against Billy's back. He screamed, and I saw blood spring from his back, through his clothes a horrible crimson arc exploding into the air. That was too much for me. I ran, and I ran, and I ran. I didn't know where to, I just ran. I darted through the shop into the street, giving it all I could. I think I crashed into a policeman. It was only because I literally ran into someone that I was stopped. The rest is something of a blur. He took me, I think, to the police station because I sounded like I'd gone crazy. Eventually they got enough out of me to realise that there was a man possibly bleeding to death at the clock shop. I refused to go back in. The police constable went in there for only a few moments before he came back out and demanded that an ambulance be sent for. Billy was brought out on a stretcher, unconscious but still alive. And surprisingly, they thought I'd gone mad, but they knew I couldn't have done that to him. I spent some time with a local nurse who tried to calm me down. I, I really don't remember much. It's all a bit of a blur. Gwillem returned home the lunchtime of that day. I remember him looking very grave and not quite knowing what to do with me. When I told him the story, there was not the look of disbelief that I had faced from the police. He listened to my every word and took it in slowly and that wasn't like him. I was used to him being distracted and preoccupied, mumbling, muttering and talking to himself, but he listened intently and carefully, and when I finished the story he made no comment, asked no questions. He simply nodded and said I'd better get some rest. The more I think back to that day, the more I think he believed me, that he found something out when he was doing his research, and knew something strange about that clock. But he never said, so I can only guess and assume. The only thing he said was that he thought it best that I was sent back to school early. I was only in town one more night, which I spent at the inn because I refused absolutely to go back into the shop. Gwillem saw me again in the morning, he was tired and worried-looking, and gave me the money for my train ticket. That was the last I ever saw of him. The next time a holiday came around and my parents were away, I spent it with a wealthy family my father had befriended. When I asked about Uncle Gwillem, I was simply told that he was unwell. It was years before they admitted to me that he had died. I don't know exactly when. I tried to forget everything about that day. My parents never asked about it or discussed it with me, but they knew, at least they knew something. If I ever mentioned Gwillem, the subject was changed swiftly. Years later, I went back to Egham. I was working nearby, so I thought I should have a look. The shop was no longer there, the buildings were all new. I thought them bombed in the war and rebuilt, but I visited the old inn where I recognised a few faces, though much older, of course. I asked them about the old clock shop, without revealing who I was. They all knew it had burnt down. A great fire had broken out and spread to several other shops, destroying them all. The owner had died, apparently the only casualty. They described him as a queer, odd little fellow who had always been a bit strange. Apparently there had been a dreadful accident there just a few days before, a man was flogged within an inch of his life. 
and no one knew how it had happened. So the legend goes. I can only testify to what I saw, and of course that was many, many years ago. Sadly, the man at the heart of this story died shortly before it was originally published. Whether he felt any closure or not, I can't speculate. But when we last spoke, he did express his conviction that despite the passing of years, that he was more certain than ever that everything he remembered had really, truly happened. The black clock is presumed to have been destroyed in the fire. Thank you for listening to the New Ghost Stories podcast. This podcast is written, presented and produced by David Paul Nixon. Today's story features in the book 11 New Ghost Stories, available from Amazon, iTunes and other major book retailers. This podcast is entirely self-funded and produced, you can probably tell, which means any support you can offer counts enormously. If you enjoyed the podcast, please give it a review on whatever platform you listen to it on, and please subscribe to hear upcoming releases. You can find out more about New Ghost Stories at newghoststories.com and you can find new stories and the latest content on my substack, davidpaulnixon.substack.com You can also read the latest updates from me on Twitter at New Ghost Stories. Next time on the New Ghost Stories podcast, the first of a two-part story about a man on the edge whose demons become so terrifyingly real they walk the streets beside him. (laughs) 